Good morning. Uh, Open your Bibles now to the book of Acts. Today we're in chapter 22, and we will be looking at the title of the message is Paul on Trial, but it's really a pre-trial by our definition these days. Um, If you read the opening quote in the bulletin on the very first page, you see it actually materialized before our, our eyes as we follow Paul through the latter chapters of the book of Acts, he's going to be on trial a lot. And he's going to suffer a lot, and he's going to be persecuted a lot, and he's going to defend and answer questions regarding the gospel. And so while it may appear to be repetitive, at times it is, uh, but it, it is instructive so much for us as we consider Um, what the book of Acts has to teach us. So today we're beginning in chapter 22, verse 22. One of the things I like uh, uh, while live streaming television is they have in the right-hand corner on the screen something called recap. And that is where they recap the episode beforehand. Now last Sunday we were not in the book of Acts, So you may need to be caught up to speed a little bit. We know that Paul had, uh, through the advice of James and the leaders in Jerusalem, had prepared to go to the temple, but was seen walking through the city with Trophimus. And uh, the Jews trumped up charges against Paul uh, that he was a blasphemer, He was uh, thrown out of the temple precincts, uh, abused and beaten by the temple police. The Romans heard about it, descended on the riot, broke it up, put him in chains, were taking him up the stairway, uh, the northwest corner of the temple precinct, to the uh, barracks they had there, and Paul asked for permission to speak, and he spoke, and something he said triggered Uh, They were mostly quiet because he spoke in Aramaic, but there was one thing he said that triggered uh, another riot. And uh, the poor Roman uh, curator at that point, uh, Claudius Lysias, had to try to get to the bottom of what was going on uh, in the midst of all of these people yelling and screaming and throwing dust and throwing their cloaks, which you'll see in a moment, And he he went to very patient, great lengths and really ended up in many ways protecting Paul. So we're jumping into the story here at verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then, uh, let's look at verse 21 because this is what they heard they didn't like. And he said to me, that is Jesus on the Damascus road, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting, throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? 
When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you to do? Uh, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum, Paul, Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood uh, stood by him to strike him on the mouth and then Paul said to him God is going to strike you you whitewashed wall are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck hypocrite <laughs> would you revile that was my editorial remark would you revile God's high priest and Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for you, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you again for the book of Acts. We know that you have placed it in the canon because it's important for us. It has so much in it to show us uh, your wisdom, your glory, your power, your compassion, uh, and the way that you work out your purposes according to your will. And we pray today that you would give our hearts uh, a, a spiritual responsiveness that we would be tender and receptive and responsive hearts of flesh not hearts of stone and we pray the Holy Spirit would instruct us teach us correct us rebuke us encourage us lift us up and build us up all for the glory of Christ and we pray in his name Historical sources indicate that the Gentile sentiment 
was increasing, or the anti-Gentile sentiment was increasing in Judea when Paul reached Jerusalem in the year 50 AD, late 50 AD. And this may explain why the temple crowd flew into such a rage when Paul mentioned that Jesus had sent him to the Gentiles. Whatever good will Paul had gained by recounting his credentials of Jewish loyalty was quickly lost when he clarified that the faraway ones to whom Jesus sent him were the Gentiles. And that triggered an eruption. An irate mob ensued. And the crowd chanted in unison, away with such a fellow from the earth or perhaps from the promised land. In their indignation, we note, they're taking off their cloaks and... Um, to free their arms so that they could throw or hurl whatever they could find at the blasphemer. Ironically, uh, as you consider this scene, their target, the Apostle Paul, had once kept the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. They tossed dust into the air to vent their rage at Paul, who stood on the stairs above them. And Paul had spoken in Aramaic, so the tribune uh, was not aware or did not understand what he had said. And so the mob's sudden shift from attentive silence to vociferous agitation made it obvious that Paul had not pacified his opponents, but rather uh, agitated them. Uh, and he needed to be removed from the temple precincts to bring the situation under control. Think a moment about the Roman... Um, uh, officer here. His responsibility was to keep the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the worst thing that could ever happen to him were riots like this to break out among the Jewish people because that would put him in danger of dealing with the um, upper power establishment of Rome. And so at all costs and all measures they did their best to keep the peace. And so the result uh, of this was that Paul uh, needed to be removed and the situation needed to be brought under control. And out of respect for Tarsus, the city of Paul's birth, Lysias had allowed Jews, this Jew in particular, to address the crowd. Uh, the result was more disturbance and the tribune was still no closer to understanding the cause of it all. So he commanded a centurion interrogate Paul using an instrument that Rome found quite effective in extracting the truth from a stubborn witness. The scourge, or the flogging instrument, had leather thongs on which bits of knuckle bone and metal were embedded so that each lash not only inflicted pain, but also bruised and tore the flesh. Roaming scourging could break bones, and victims sometimes died from their wounds. And so as the soldiers tied him up, stretched him out, ready to receive the lash, Paul played the trump card of his Roman citizenship, as he and Silas had done when beaten and imprisoned in Rome, uh, Philippi. He quietly asked the supervising centurion, Is it lawful for you to flog? A Roman citizen who is not yet tried and condemned? 
Imperial law from that time, uh, as uh, uh, Augustus owned, banned the flogging of Roman citizens prior to a formal trial and sentencing. And so the centurion recognized the claim implied in the prisoner's question and immediately responded it or reported it to the tribune who rushed back to question Paul personally. Paul reaffirmed that, reaffirmed that he was indeed a Roman citizen. And whether or not he was carrying any proof of citizenship, his claim could have been verified through the public records of Tarsus. Falsely claiming, by the way, Roman citizenship was a capital crime. So a person already in Roman custody had absolutely nothing to gain by lying about it. Claudius Lysus' remark that he himself had acquired citizenship at great cost implied that the priv privilege had been cheapened since then so that even a Jew who was obviously a persona non grata with his own people could afford it. Technically, Roman citizenship could not be bought. It was a privilege inherited by birth or confer conferred in recognition for faithful service to Rome or to a Roman citizen. During the reign of Claudius, however, citizenship was virtually for sale by the empress and her circle, as well as others. A strategic bribe brought citizens uh, status to Lysias, opening the way for his promotion from centurion to tribune. If Lysias intended to devalue Paul's citizenship, he was in for one more surprise. Paul was a citizen by birth, having inherited the privilege from his father or grandfather. Old second generation citizenship was more highly regarded than the recently acquired, whatever the latter's price tag. So Paul one-upped him in every way in terms of citizenship. Understandably, the soldiers who had been ready to flog answers out of the prison suddenly drew back as their commander himself was gripped with alarm and as uh, armed temple police sent to arrest Jesus fell back when they actually met him in John 18:6. so now a thousand Roman soldiers quailed in fear of their prisoner Paul the servant of Jesus Christ if a Roman citizen had received the brutal treatment that Lysias had ordered it would have dire consequences for his up-and-coming career and his person. In his report to the governor, he would put a positive spin on his role in the events. Paul urged Christians, listen carefully, here's the application. Paul urged Christians to submit to human governments as God's ministers of justice, to punish criminals, and to defend the innocent. He also expected government officials to live up to their high calling. Although willing to suffer submissively for Jesus' sake when necessary, Paul did not hesitate to challenge those in power uh, to wield that power with justice. In the fallen world, Christians are tempted to relate to flawed governments either with intimidated compliance or with defiant rebellion. Calm in his confidence that Christ is Lord of all, Paul shows as a God-glorifying response superior to either of these extremes. And so Paul was careful 
not to radically run, run one way or the other, but through careful deliberation, uh, that generated over time his response. I think of the coronavirus and the restrictions put on uh, with the coronavirus. And uh, I'm sure that many of you are aware, and some of you may be the subject of it, uh, the session has received uh, several uh, items of criticism for the way we responded to the COVID virus. And I understand that. I understand that we are not above criticism. We are not infallible. Uh, we're just men, sinful at best, trying to discern God's will. But knee-jerk reaction is never <laughs> God's will. Never. I never see that. Through careful deliberation, considering all, we have to take our stand. And I'm not trying to defend anything. All I'm trying to say is that when you look, you have to understand that we would not do either intimidated compliance or defiant rebellion, but calm and measured wisdom uh, in responding to the events of the day. As we continue, we see Paul's defense to the leaders of Israel, Claudius Lysias, had his troops and his troops rescued Paul from a fatal beating at the hands of the Jewish mob, spared him the indignity and wounds of a flogging, but they also kept Paul chained in custody overnight. Were they protectors or were they his prisoner? Or was he their prisoner? To figure out how to handle the case of, of this Jew and a Roman citizen from Tarsus, the tribune still needed to discover why Paul's presence provoked a temple riot. This chaotic and conflicting shouts of the mob revealed nothing uh, to anyone. Letting the prisoner address the crowd had made matters worse. Paul's Roman citizenship ruled out the possibility of beating the truth out of him. Perhaps the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, composed of chief priests, biblical and legal scholars and elders, could identify what Paul's offense was. In the governor's name, Lysias ordered the council to assemble in an emergency session and meeting. The high priest, Ananias, was always eager to curry favor with the Roman authorities. He readily complied. So here we see rebuke and respect for a lawless justice. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin, or Hedron, gauging the spiritual openness of the priests, teachers, and elders. Paul knew a lot about the Sanhedrin council. He knew a lot about this uh, council. He had appeared before them. He was sent to Damascus by them to persecute Christians. So they knew who he was. He knew who they were. But... Uh, he comes and uh, looks at them, and he launches into an... He, he was usually, you don't speak in that situation unless you're spoken to. Paul took the bull by the horns and launched into his defense at this pretrial, um, asserting that he had conducted himself as a citizen before God in all good conscience. The term conduct oneself as a citizen appears in the New Testament only here and in Paul's letter to Philippi, a colony whose citizens were pretty much privileged Romans. Um, Paul was a citizen of Tarsus, of Rome, and of Israel. 
What mattered most, however, was how he conducted himself before the sovereign who examines the conscience. Paul was not claiming to have achieved here any kind of sinless perfection because that can't be done. In fact, he had given up trusting in his own righteousness and now saw himself as the worst of sinners because he had persecuted Christ's church. But in the matter before the court, Paul knew as God as his witness that he had done nothing to provoke the riot that had occurred. He had not violated the Torah or the temple. He had not broken Caesar's law either. Ananias, the high priest, reacted immediately with a command that somebody punch Paul in the mouth. Such an order was completely in character for Ananias, whom Josephus criticizes as dishonoring his office through greed and violence. Did he hear in Paul's profession of innocence an implied accusation against the Sadducean establishment who had previously persecuted the church? Paul shot back a rebuke. Paul says, God is going to strike you, echoing the law's covenant curse in Deuteronomy 28, and the prophetic picture of a wall about to fall, even though it had a coat of whitewash, masked its inner decay. That image comes from Ezekiel. Paul not only called Roman authorities to follow due Roman process, but he expected Israel's leaders to observe the demand of God's law for impartial judgment, in which punishment awaits conviction on the basis of real evidence. He was outraged that one who presumed to judge him according to the law would so flagrantly violate the law while doing it. Paul's rebuke evoked its own rebuke from the bystanders. Would you revile God's high priest? The apostles' instantaneous response shows us that God's grace was at work in his heart. Paul's cause was just and his words about Ananias were true. But when the apostle learned that he, his retort had dishonored the office of the high priest, he humbly repented for the way he had spoken these words. God's law forbade speaking evil of the ruler of your people, and Paul was also under the law of Christ. Christ calls his followers to respect rulers for their office's sake, however unworthy their personal conduct. Did you hear that? Did you hear what I just said? Paul was under the law of Christ. Christ calls his followers to respect rulers for their office sake, however unworthy their personal conduct. We don't see much of that in our culture, do we? We don't see much of that in our churches, do we? People speaking disrespectfully of leadership. And I'm first in line to repent because I've said some terrible things about some leaders. But that's not a very Christian thing to do. Do you realize that? Do you understand that? That that's a violation of God's will? Paul's hidden reversal from prophetic wrath to repentance and respect calls us to be countercultural, reflecting instead our Lord Jesus' calm endurance when he was struck for speaking the truth. Now, why, why, why did Paul not recognize the high priest? Well, there are multiple reasons. Uh, he would have known who Ananias was, but remember, this is an emergency session. Remember, number two, that this is probably at night. 
Remember number three, that he probably wasn't wearing the high priest's garb. He thought he was just addressing a member of the council, perhaps not the high priest. Or Paul could have been just like us. He popped off at the mouth without thinking about it. He's not sanctified yet, totally. Or he could have been being sarcastic in his response at the hypocrisy of the high priest doing that to him. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. Right now, I don't know. I don't know which one it was. Text doesn't tell us, but I do know that. So, through his rabbinical education under Gamaliel and his association with the Jerusalem authorities, Paul knew well the theological differences between the Sadducees who made up the temple establishment and the legal experts, most of whom were Pharisees, both parties were represented in the Sanhedrin. And so Paul divides and conquers. The high priest, an arrogant abuse of power, persuaded Paul that he needed to spotlight the Sadducee-Pharisee disagreement over the doctrine of, guess what? The resurrection in order to show his fellow Pharisees that his Christian convictions were a faithful extension of even their understanding of Judaism. As Luke helpfully explains to his Gentile readers, Sadducees were basically elitist, they were basically wealthy, they were upper crust people, they were very political, they were very liberal in their theology. By the way, a liberal theologian and a conservative theologian are not necessarily the same way in their politics. But here, he's speaking of their theological viewpoint and that the uh, Sadducees were pretty much uh, elitist in their viewpoint. They did not believe there was a, is a resurrection, nor did they believe in angels or spirits. They denied both the bodily resurrection at the end of history and the intermediate state of the righteous in either angelic or spirit form between death and the last day. Belief that the dead could appear as a spirit or an angel is reflected in Luke's gospel. They could not find these doctrines in the books of Moses. The only thing they accepted was Torah, the first five books. And... Uh, the rest were not authoritative. Therefore, Jesus had turned to Moses' second book, Exodus, to show the Sadducees' denial of the resurrection contradicted God's faithfulness to the patriarchs. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in a final resurrection as Israel's ultimate hope, and therefore in the personal survival of the righteous at death or after death. In this respect, Paul remained a loyal Pharisee whom, when he discovered Jesus had already been raised as the first fruits of the final resurrection harvest. The Creator, who made man a psychosomatic unity, would not allow death to have the last word. This hope, which has always been Paul's as a Pharisee, found its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, the risen Lord. Although Paul had been slandered as despising the law and defiling the temple, to his own mind the resurrection was the central issue separating him from the power block who controlled the temple. Here's what Paul's saying. It's a gospel issue. This is not a Sadducee position, and this is not a Pharisee position. This is a gospel issue. That's what you're so upset about. You're so upset about 
the uh, positive half of the gospel, that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The effect of his proclamation was immediate division, chaos, noisy confusion prevailed in the Sanhedrin, just as it had in the Gentiles' assembly at Ephesus, legal scholars rose to the defense of Paul. Most of the scribes and lawyers, they weren't lawyers like we consider lawyers, they were experts in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, they actually um, were defending Paul their fellow Pharisee, pronouncing him innocent of wrongdoing. They even held open the possibility that Jesus had appeared as a spirit or in angelic form to speak to Paul. They knew that could happen. They would uh, be the first of several opinions exonerating Paul uh, before he reached Rome. This conflict deteriorated from the verbal to the physical to the point that Lysias again feared for Paul's safety and sent soldiers to retrieve Paul again into the safety of the fortress Antonia. The question whether Paul had committed a crime warranting further custody still had not been answered. Hmm. Paul's snappish retort in response to the high priest's abuse may have been symptomatic of the strain he was experiencing because he was under severe strain. His every effort to vindicate the gospel in the eyes of his countrymen ended in controversy and even violence. These people were hardened, very hardened. And so something amazing happened to him that I think is one of the sweetest scenes in all of the Bible. In the night following the debacle with the Sanhedrin, the Lord Jesus came to Paul as he had in Corinth, and he comforted his downcast and weary witness. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. We are immortal till God is finished with what we are placed here to do. If you're now here present in this congregation and you think, I'm old, I don't have any use, um, I'm past my prime, uh, I'm just invisible, you know, I'm trying to live my way out, don't say that. As I used to say to my children, don't say that. You need to understand as long as your heart's beating and you're walking on this earth, God has you here. And there are things he is using you to do, whether you know about it or not. And so Paul understood. I mean, the man's facing death every second, it seems, while he's in Jerusalem. And yet Jesus comes to him, as it were, puts his arm around him and says to him, you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Buddy, you are going to Rome. I am sending you to Rome. For a long time, Paul had been hoping and praying to reach Rome. Why? Because Rome was the capital of the world. It was the empire. It was the seat of power. It was a place of incredible influence at this time in history. The Pax Romana extended across the Mediterranean areas and the Roman Empire. 
And so Paul had been hoping and praying to reach Rome. But the Spirit's predictions of sufferings awaiting him in Jerusalem placed his plan in doubt. Now, Jesus spoke his sovereign must, which made Paul's arrival in Rome absolutely certain. Many dangers, toils, and snares lay between Paul and his destination as they do between ourselves and our heavenly home. But the Lord's invincible purpose guarantees every believer's arrival just as certainly as Paul would reach Rome via the surprising route of legal appeal, storm, and shipwreck, which is in front of us as we continue. That is comforting to me to know that nothing can prevent my being escorted into the presence of Jesus when I die. As one theologian said, don't put dead on my tombstone. I'm more alive now than I ever was. I think that'll be true of all of us who believe. We will be more alive than we have ever been in the presence of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for this section of the book of Acts. It is uh, quite a word. And we thank you for the way you've spoken to us, the way you have showed us your ways that are above our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. Your ways are higher than our ways. And yet you bring all things to, uh, to pass according to your sovereign will which was determined before the world was and we thank you that we can trust you even when everything is chaotic and flying apart around us there is that central core of peace we know because we are in union with Jesus Christ never to be separated from him forever now, Lord, as we continue to worship, we pray that you would continue to minister to our needy souls. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.